I'll go ahead and pray and we'll start. Lord, I just thank you for today and we thank you for the opportunity we've had to be in Genesis and, and enjoy your word, to enjoy the beginnings and seeing your hand planning uh, even our lives today, Lord, from the beginning. Pray, Lord, that you would guide our hearts and our minds as we turn to your word. Amen. So we're in Genesis 49 today. Genesis 49, and we stopped somewhat abruptly with the blessing being given to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the younger receiving the honor of being of first importance over the, the older, but both receiving a blessing and both taking the place of Joseph in the line of brothers thereby allowing Joseph to receive a double portion from his father and, and there being a total of 12 tribes in the land plus the tribe of Levi who wouldn't receive an inheritance in the land but instead were gods. We'll see later that that tribe gets, takes the place of actually the uh, firstborn children instead of your firstborn child being devoted solely to the Lord. God took one of the tribes as that the offspring devoted solely toward the Lord, and that was the tribe of Levi. So we have this set up then where Jacob now, and this is a separate occasion, we have that solemn occasion of the blessing of the children, and then you have on top of that, uh, now we have the occasion of prophesying and somewhat blessing uh, of the, the tribes as a whole, each individual tribe. What is interesting here is that just as we saw when Jacob and Esau received their blessing and their blessing and their prophecy of what was to come for them, some of these things are good and some of these things are bad. And as you read through these, you see that um, some things in the past are brought up and, and things in the future are promised. And some of the things we don't have any record that these things actually took place but instead they were things that uh, maybe will occur in the future even, even beyond our time now. Certainly those are present in some of these uh, because they are promised in the future even uh, further in the, Old, in the Old Testament. So if we start verse 1, then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. It starts well enough, and it makes you wonder, in Reuben's life, if Joseph hadn't come along, would, jo would Reuben have been the one to receive the blessing of his father and receive from him the, uh, the tunic, the coat that, that signified that he was the chosen one to move forward? with the family, and then it goes on in verse 4, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Relating back to, to Reuben's fall, certainly why Reuben wasn't leading after that, and why we see uh, Judah actually taking the place of the preeminent one of the family, the leader of all the tribes. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. 
Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So, so far, this is the first real uh, prophecy about the sons that's going to take place. And we already mentioned that Levi, the Levites were scattered throughout all of the promised land. They didn't have any single holding. They had cities that they could live in, um, but theirs was to serve God. And that's part of that promise. But we also see the reflection on why that is. And I always thought it was strange that because Levi went, and you'll remember he and his brother Simeon were the ones who avenged their sister who had been raped by killing the men that had done it. And it always seemed odd to me that that's the family that God decided, okay, you're the tribe of Levi, this is your beginnings. I'm going to make you into a priest, a line of priests for my people. But that is where they come from. And then we move to Judah, and this is, I think, the one that's most important, for that is where our Savior descends from, but it also gives us some insight into the rest of the prophecies here and the, the blessings given. And So verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down to you, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. So certainly we see this picture that this is going to be the, the tribe from which royalty comes from. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And we would say, well, this must not yet be fulfilled. We certainly know that the line of David gets established in, in Israel. But even then, the northern kingdoms get torn away. And right now, there is no king in Israel in our day. So this has not yet been fulfilled where that scepter does not remove. Certainly the line will flow through Christ himself. But until then, we see that this has not yet been fulfilled. So this, this is where I say when you look at some of these predictions for these boys, understand that, or these men, understand that some of these things may have taken place. We may not have records of some of them having taken place and therefore don't know about them. And some of these things may actually occur in the distant future or near future, depending on how long the Lord waits for his kingdom to be established. But there is that, the other thing that you're going to see there is that just the incredible prosperity that's associated with when Shiloh comes, or when, when he comes to Shiloh, when the one who comes, comes to reign for good forever. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. All the nations of the earth will be obedient to him. So this is beyond anything we saw even in, in Solomon's time, 
where people came and honored Solomon and were impressed by Solomon. This is obedience of all the peoples. He takes his full to to the vine. Basically, he's got his donkey tied up to a vine because of uh, all the wealth and prosperity that is present there. Washing garments in wine. Wine is so plentiful that, that you treat it as water. And his eyes are dull from wine and teeth white from milk. And I thought it was interesting that one of the translations for that would be that his teeth are, or his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And you can go with that. Or you can go with the fact that there's milk and wine in, in the eternal kingdom or in the, the kingdom, the future kingdom of Israel. Um, so we see there these promises that have not yet been fulfilled, but the, the Judah is, is raised up to be the tribe. He is now the preeminent one. 13, Zebulun will dwell on the seashore and shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. That's not anything that we've seen happen necessarily. Um, so maybe, maybe there's some history there we don't know or some future that we're not yet, that has not yet been revealed. Issachar, if I ever own a donkey, his name's going to be Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulders to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, and that certainly took place. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. And that is kind of a description of all the judges and, and their role in mostly the Philistines, but their role in the nations around Israel when they would be oppressed and the judges would rise up and it'd be more like guerrilla warfare where the smaller nation of Israel would be able to fight off these larger nations. So a good description there of Dan. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, and he will raid at their heels. Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. That sounds tasty. Little tasty things. Uh, Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall or bow. It was run over a wall. The archers bitterly attack him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessing of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breast and of the womb, Blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. So a description not only of the blessing to come for for Joseph in, in Ephraim and Manasseh and those tribes, but also just an, an explanation of the blessing that is even on Joseph at that moment, certainly at the end there. The one who is distinguished among his brothers. He's different than them. And you've got that feeling just from the very first dream he had. He is different than the brothers who he was raised with and the brothers with whom he separated themselves from him. And then Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey and in the evening divides the spoil. 
Benjamin was always an aggressive tribe, the tribe of Benjamin was, and that is where Saul comes from, as well as Saul, who would become Paul. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and that is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them. So we have this blessing given, and the Jacob is doing these things as he's preparing to die. We saw he's preparing to die when he called Joseph's sons to him, and, and that's what we're working towards. We're working towards the death of Jacob. So Jacob charged him and says, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought, along with the field from Ephraim the Hittite for a burial site. And they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah, and they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. It's almost like he's reciting something that they have all know and that he's said many times before giving the exact location and, and why it's important. Remember, that's the one piece of land that they truly hold, that they own in the promised land, and he's looking back at that. He's looking back not only at the location geographically, but he's looking at the promises made to the people who are buried there and the fact that this is moving forward, the fact that God's plan is linear, that, that there is not a circle of life. It is a straight line of life, and it is marching forward, and Jacob understands that. The other thing to note here is that Jacob believes he will die. This is different. How many in here think you will die? Okay, all of you know that if you live long enough, you will, right? How many of you think you will die before the Lord returns? Okay, yeah. Some of us are like, well, the younger you are, you're like, no, I, I certainly when, gosh, 40 years ago, I would have said, yeah, I don't know that I'll ever die because the Lord might return, and I'll go meet him in the air. It'd be awesome. Um, that's not something that they have here. They don't have that idea that we might avoid death, and I think that's something we have. It's a hope we have, and it's a good thing to avoid death. Remember, death is not something that God had originally placed. Death is a bad thing, right? What caused death? Sin caused death. Death is not good. You want to be careful. As we're, as we're studying death today, you want to be careful that death is not, for the Christian, yes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But for the Christian, understand, even for us, death is not a thing of happiness and great joy. It is normal to mourn. It is normal to be sad, to be separated from the living and for the living to lose the companionship of those who they love to death. Well, why is it that, that Jacob knows that he's going to die? He knows he's going to die because he's planning on being buried in the land of Canaan, which they do not hold yet. He knows that there is more to this story that God is playing out. He knows he has to go back to the land of Canaan after he dies and be buried there so that God's plan can be fulfilled, that God is going to give them the land of Canaan, they will become a great nation there, and that the seed that we've been, been talking about since the beginning of Genesis can actually come about. That person is not yet here. There's an allusion to it that he made in chapter 
at the beginning of this chapter, middle of this chapter, dealing with Judah and the scepter that's going to stay with Judah. But even then, it's probably not totally clear that that's where the Messiah will come from. That's where the seed will come from. So he has hope for the future, but in doing so, he also understands his role is about to come to an end, and that will end in death. So he acknowledges that his time to die is soon, but he also knows that it's important to set up a plan of how this is going to be. He's giving his boys their final instructions. He's involving all of them around him. This is something they need to take part in, and we're going to see in the funeral that they, the, the sons all go up to bury their father. But we don't sense any fear in death. It's an acknowledgement that it is there. Even the mourning that's about to take place, the the weeping for the loss of Jacob, for the loss of their father, there's no fear for him in death. Now, there's fear for his boys, and we're going to cover that in a little bit. But for Jacob himself, he's not afraid of death. It's, It's understood. He wants to go back and be connected with those who have who have gone before him in burial, tying himself and them to the land of promise. And then we have this statement that I want to go through now. We've seen it before. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. It's an interesting view here. We see that uh, you can just picture him sitting on the side of his bed, blessing his children, laying down, pulling his covers up over his feet, sliding his feet under the covers, pulling his covers up and breathing his last and he is gone. What's interesting is he's gathered to his people. Who are the people that he's gathered to? The other patriarchs. He's not gathered to his sons, right? Because he's already with them. He's with his sons. And who's doing the gathering? Interesting. Is it Jacob that's gathering himself to his people? The people are gathering him. It's a beautiful picture we have here of the future of his... In his death, he is going to be gathered to his people, not the ones alive, but those who have died. His, his future is one of being with those who he loved who had gone before him in death. He's going to a community of people. It isn't just that he's going into oblivion and will no longer exist. It isn't that he disappears from all he. Um, from all eternity. Again, it isn't that he, he recycles and is, is reincarnated. This picture of death is one where you are brought to those who have gone before you. You're, you're brought in by them and you're going into a community of people. That it isn't just you as an individual floating through space after death. There's a connection even without the resurrection having taken place at this point. That you're going to a community of people, they're gathering you in, they're the ones that, you, that went before you, and those who you are going to are actually active in this process. It's an amazing statement, and, and we don't want to read too much into it, but we don't want to ignore that it's been mentioned over and over again, and I think it is giving us that hope that we should have even in death. These are all important ways for you to view how it is we die and do we die well. We as believers should be known to, for our ability to die really well. And not just 
you yourself as you are dying, but as those around you who you love die? How is it that you deal with that? Do you deal with it with a hope of what God has promised? Do you deal with it with an understanding that death is a separation? We started with a perfect garden. We're ending in death. Genesis 1, everything's great. By Genesis 3, the whole thing looks like it's fallen apart. But there's a hope that God has a plan. And we've seen that plan start to play out. But we still end, you'll remember the chapter that he begot him and he died and then he begot him and he died 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 and he died. And now we're going to end Genesis with he died. We should have an understanding of what death is and we should be able to deal with it when it comes and we should be able to look forward to it. And when we lose those who we love, yes, there's a sad separation. Yes, death is bad, but do we die well? So then we see that he breathes his last and Jacob is taken from us. And just pause again, a, a man with a sad life and yet a man who was pivotal in the, he's one of the patriarchs. He's pivotal in, in the story of redemption. A great man who even through all he has been through completely trusts God and even in his death is working with the plan of I'm going to get back to the land of Canaan. God promised me I would be there. And he's still working towards that. A man of incredible faith. You can say that those who fail God at times are the ones who, who display some of the greatest faith Again, we have a Savior that saves sinners. He saves those of us who fail the most, more, so to speak, than those who have lived righteous lives, certainly more than those who believe they are righteous. 50 verse 1 then, we see his burial. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period requiring the embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Just really quick in verse 1, this, I, this verse I think should, should taint, should color, should give you some fullness to your understanding of the relationship between Joseph and Jacob. And, and it's tainted in a negative way, in the fact that we think that, well, Jacob was a bad dad because he showed favoritism to one of his sons. But let's acknowledge the close relationship that these two men had, certainly in death and certainly in their understanding of each other. They're together from the beginning, in the beginning, and then they were separated and then eventually brought back. Jacob or Joseph was blessed with a certain love of his father that the other sons weren't. He was the son of his father's true love, the firstborn of Rachel. There's a whole reuniting that takes place when, they, when he comes down to Egypt to meet Joseph. And Joseph here has more than fulfilled his father's own expectations of him, or even uh, he completely fulfilled the prediction that Joseph had of who he would be. Not only that, but you can imagine as a father, the, the joy you see that one of your children not, provides for themselves I'm seeing that in my own sons. They're not here so I can talk about them. I see that in my own sons. And it's like, you know, if someone asks me how they're doing, I usually end it with, they, they, they pay their own way. They pay their taxes. They, they, I don't have to do anything with them. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see that in your sons. Well, Joseph not only provided for himself, but he provided for all of his brothers and all of his brothers' families. 
And not only did that, but save them from certain destruction in a famine. And so, again, the, the, the pride that must have been in the, the feelings of closeness with his son as he sees his son and basically t- filling his position must have been tremendous. So Joseph is able to provide for his, not only his father, but all his brothers and their families. So as you look back and you say that there's a favoritism shown from Jacob to Joseph, understand that there's also a relationship here that is not the fault of either man. There's some good in that relationship and that there is a chance that Joseph was different than his brothers in a good way. And it's really hard as a parent to have a child who, you would, who does what you ask them to do and does things right and who has the same likes and everything to not have a relationship that's different than the brothers. And I'm not saying that Jacob did everything right with Joseph in the way he handled it, but maybe they deserve a little bit of understanding in their relationship. And I think that's pictured here as Joseph loses his father, the love they had for one another. Is certainly not something that his brothers had with his father, even, I would say, before, before Joseph came along. So Joseph has this plan to bury his father, involving embalming and, and a period of mourning. And then he goes to, to, to Pharaoh to get permission. And it's an interesting application process. When the days of mourning for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh So it's like he goes to the State Department and says, hey, um, if I have found favor in your sight, please speak speak to Pharaoh saying, so if if the State Department of Egypt, if the leaders of Egypt, if I've found favor in your sight and you think he would have, please speak to Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. So he asked permission from the household of Pharaoh to go and ask Pharaoh himself and gives a reason why he's asking for this in his application. But he also gives then a promise to return, and I will come back. And there's two reasons for him to come back. One is he's a, he's a leader in Egypt, but the other is the fact that They're in Egypt to grow themselves as a people. And again, I think Joseph has a firm understanding of what the role here is. Jacob does as well. They're brought to Egypt because God has a plan to grow them as a country there before they move into the land. And we see the the affirmation by Pharaoh to go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Not only does he allow for them to do it, but he acknowledges the importance that Jacob had is a reason why. And then we see the funeral. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders in his household, all the elders in the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers and his father's household, and they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. And there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a great company, and they came to the threshing floor of Adad, Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. He observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mezram, which is beyond the Jordan. So, Not a state funeral, 
but certainly a national funeral because the people that attended are Pharaoh's household plus the elders of Pharaoh's house. So I assume that would be the extended relations of Pharaoh himself. All of the, the older men that lead have positions of power. They all go. The elders of Egypt as well. And yes, they're doing this out of, I think, some, some deference to Joseph himself, to honor Joseph himself, but ultimately it's to honor Jacob here. Who would have thought Jacob would be given basically a royal, a royal funeral attended by the most important people in the strongest, in the, the most powerful nation in the world at the time? All the elders of Egypt and then their brothers. And then it mentions here, a really important point that they left the little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. Well, why? Why does it mention it? We know why they do that. It's just easier. You don't want to go on a long trip in a chariot with crying little babies. That doesn't sound like fun. You'd have to come back and get them. They've got to come back to Egypt. Their place is in Egypt. Their place is not in the promised land right now. That's not what God has planned for them. And I think that's the most important thing to note here is they left their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They are not leaving the land of Goshen. And it's, it's interesting. They're going to the promised land to bury and they're coming back. They're not staying there. So just as Joseph said, I'm going to return, the families themselves are not going back. Understand that the famine is over. It's not that there isn't enough in, in the land of Canaan. It's not God's time yet. There's a future coming, and so they come back. It's an incredibly large group, so large that they, when the, the, the people that live in the land see it and see everything that's taking place as they prepare for the burial, the name of the place gets changed. It's, it's now known as uh, the the. What the uh, um, the name gets changed for the fact that it's where the grievous mourning took place. Geography gets redone here because of this, and it must have been a huge number of people with all the horses, all the chariots, the procession that went forth, the cloud of dust that followed them. As it, I mean, it just must have been incredibly impressive to see this funeral procession as it takes place. So verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons, now you see his sons are the ones who are involved in actually carrying out the, the, the burial itself. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field of Mechplah before Mamre, which Abraham, Abraham had bought along with the field for the burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. You get the feeling that this whole returning to Egypt is an important thing, right? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died. Remember, remember what dad said, um, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sins, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when he spoke to him. 
So the brothers are, are, are afraid in death. They're afraid of what's going to happen when their father dies. And there's no longer that buffer between themselves and Joseph. And certainly they had reason to doubt their safety and safety in the fact that they were not very trusting people and the fact that they were guilty. They didn't understand forgiveness. They didn't understand the level at which Joseph said, you are forgiven. This is all in the hand of God. It's, it's his plan. So, so settle down. He's already told them once and they still doubt it. And because of their doubt, they deal with guilt and they deal with a, a, a crevice in the relationship with Joseph. Understand that's what guilt does. If you deal with guilt and you hold on to guilt and you are unwilling to accept forgiveness and unwilling to enjoy that, that forgiveness, you will not trust the person who is, has forgiven you and you'll act in such a way as to actually offend the one who has forgiven. And that's what they do here. They offend Joseph to tears. All that Joseph has done to them is now in, in their minds just a way to placate their father until he is gone. They really believe that Joseph is capable of providing, as we've seen, for their little ones and their animals and get them the best land in all of Egypt and have that be not because he cares for them or not because he's doing the will of God for them, but just because their father, it would hurt their dad too much. But remember, that was their view of, well, we can't send Benjamin down to Egypt when we go back, because if we don't bring him back, it'll hurt dad. So they understand that motivation to make their father happy, for they have upset their father beyond any, what any of us, I think, will ever see our children do to us. And here we have Joseph himself being offended by them because they do not trust in the forgiveness that Joseph granted. In verse 19, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? So there's a couple of things that's there in that statement. It's a wonderful statement. Am I in God's place? Am I in the place of God? Do I play God? Now, immediately, the thing that jumps to my mind is, I'm not the one who judges. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And it could be that he's, he's alluding to some of that. It's like, look, guys, don't worry about me judging you. Worry about the one who can kill your own soul. Don't worry about me and what I do. Worry about what God can do to you. And that's, that's the immediate thing that jumps to my mind. The neat thing about the Bible... <laughs> is that it very often explains to you exactly what a statement means. And here we see the explanation. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So what does he mean? Do not be afraid for, am I in God's place? It's, look, you are here not because of me, not because... Uh, I did anything. You aren't still alive because, because up till this point, Jacob has kept you from being 
slaughtered by me, which you certainly deserve. God's place and God's timing and God's plan for you is that, yes, you meant it for evil, but God did all this so that he might preserve many people alive. I'm not in God's place. I'm not the one planning all this. We're doing this according to what God had planned for you and for me. So don't be afraid. Your God is great. Your God planned all this. He has a plan for you. There's nothing you need to worry about. It's not that you mistrust me. My tears weren't that you mistrust me. My tears were that you did not trust that God has a plan for you and he's going to preserve you alive and he's going to grow you here. You don't see the point yet. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. I will provide for you and your little ones. Well, is that Joseph taking credit? No, you've got to go back to verse 20 and you see that Joseph understands that this was all the plan of God. I am just providing for you and your little ones because that's why God brought me here. I am here to provide for you. I am here to give to you what you need to survive. That's my role in this. You're worried about me doing something as far as retribution to you? No, that's not my role. That's not your role. Your role is to be preserved and multiply. My role is to provide for you. For you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And what an amazing statement there. So after all the offense, not only to himself but to God, he comforts them and speaks kindly to them. And we do see that picture of shepherding and caring for the people of God there. That's just amazing. Even in, even in offense, even when they don't do what they're supposed to do, which I don't do what I'm supposed to do, and I fail, but I have a God who comforts and speaks kindly to me and allows me to know his word and enjoy his people and enjoy fellowship in spite of myself. Again, one of the things we've learned in Genesis as we're about to finish is to look at these stories and don't identify necessarily with Joseph. If you do, way to go. You're awesome. Identify with the brothers and say, do I ever doubt God and cause offense? Do I hang on to guilt that Christ has paid for on the cross? He's standing in heaven Devil is accusing that you are guilty and he is actually defending you and yet you want to hold on to that guilt? Well, look what it does. Look at the offense that is to God. Devil probably points that out too. He still feels guilty. So just be aware. Just be aware. What an amazing picture of of God's providence in the lives of these men. Joseph understanding God's providence even for himself that he is placed there to provide for them and for their families. And therefore, any opportunity he has for vengeance is taken away. That's not what God put him there for. He understands. Certainly, God does allow people to to punish and have authority and to take vengeance on, on this earth as well. But that's not the role that Joseph has, and Joseph understands that. He understands his place. And then we move on to the end of Genesis, which is kind of sad. We should keep going, but it doesn't. So then we have verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 
110 years, Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land to the land which he promised, an oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin. I don't know if he was buried. Oh, I see. He's probably in some sort of structure or building. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that. I don't know. Let's go with that. He's in some sort of vault. In a mausoleum. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When God takes you out. And they do. They take his bones with him when they go, when they flee Egypt, Joseph goes with them. So Joseph understands. We're going to jump to that. But, but I do want to just really quick, if you turn to John 11 with me, we've got the time for this. I want to look at an, another passage, and I think it's the foremost passage in the Bible on dealing with death. How do we deal with death and what is the way we're supposed to deal with death? And, and, and I would like to, to pause and apologize to those who are in our D group for having to carry, cover this twice, um, as well as thank them for their insights and input as we discuss this passage. So, um, but John 11, we are, here we have the death and resurrection of Lazarus, and, and we don't have time to read through the whole thing, but in the beginning here, we have that uh, Lazarus, who is identified as somebody who's very close to Jesus, the, the brother of um, Martha and, and Mary, um, and so they, they, they know each other, they, they've helped in, with the ministry of Jesus, and um, they, he gets sick, and he's really sick, and so they send for Jesus in verse 6, he hears that he's sick, so he stays two days longer where he's at. So this, this Jesus, who has the power to heal, says, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Um, and he waits two days for no apparent reason. Then he says, okay, now we can go to Judea. And they're a little bit worried about, you know, what the, what the rabbis and Jews are going to do. They, they want to stone him, and so we can't really go up there. And uh, if you jump down to verse 11, we're going to skip some of this. Uh, he says, after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. His disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Meaning, yeah, they, when somebody's super sick and they're going to die, when they fall asleep and they're resting peacefully, that's usually a sign that they're recovering. Jesus, this is a, this is a theme of this chapter. Je, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying or doing. And so Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm going for your sakes that... It, I was not, or I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. 
There's so much here we should cover, but we can't. We got to keep moving. So he goes and they accuse him then. Verse 21, Martha says that he gets there and Lazarus has been dead. And he's been dead four days and even more dead than Jesus was when Jesus died. He's like a day more dead. So he comes and says in uh, 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus says, well, he's going to rise again, Martha. Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Again, a theme here, people don't understand. Jesus said to him, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So great that she believes. Does she understand what he's saying? Not at all. And so he goes away, or she goes um, away, and uh, he comes to the village. And then verse 31, um, the Jews who are with her in her house are consoling her. She gets Mary, and Mary goes out quickly. So they all follow along with Mary. And Mary came where Jesus was and saw him and fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. It's kind of like, come on, people. Jesus therefore saw her weeping. Now, now the picture here is not dissimilar to what takes place in Genesis. A family member has died and you have the family coming out and all the people mourning. We saw two episodes of mourning, the mourning when Jacob died and the mourning that took place Uh, at the time of the burial or before the burial took place. And we're seeing that kind of play out here. We have family and all the people associated with them coming in and wailing and weeping in a concern that somehow Jesus has failed because he's allowed death. As though death is the end. Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And I love this picture because the words here are give you a picture of a of a horse grumbling. A horse, kind of that deep neigh that they that kind of I I can't make horse sounds. Um, But that kind of a horse snort slash neigh, where where when a horse is not happy and they snort at you, and that's kind of the The words that are used here would describe that as well. So he's deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus weeps. He weeps because they don't believe, because they don't understand who he is and what his power is. That even four days in the grave, he has the power to restore someone to life. And even in, in verse 36, they misunderstand. Oh, he's weeping because how much he loved him. Or others were saying, oh, he could have saved him if he had just been here in time. I mean, he can make blind men see. Why, can't, why couldn't he have healed him? They don't understand the power of Jesus over death. He did, they don't understand that death is not the end. If you go back to where we are, Jacob knew Death wasn't the end. That's why he wants his bones buried in the land of Canaan, because death is not the end. God has a plan, and he's carrying it out. He's going to be gathered to his people, and God is going to keep moving forward in the timeline. 
these people don't have that full understanding. Death is not the end. And that maybe Jesus is up to something here. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, again, not necessarily all compassion here, probably some frustration and some, some concern about their lack of faith and understanding. He comes to the tomb and it was a cave and a stone and lying against it. And he said, remove the stone. And they're like, it's going to stink really, really bad. Four days, Jesus. And Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? They removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that, you may be- so that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, and some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. But we see this this amazing picture of, of the stone being rolled away and Jesus calling forth Lazarus, who's bound hand and foot, and somehow he comes out. And I've always got the picture of a bright light, and he just floats out of the grave because his hands or feet are bound, and he can't walk himself out. And, and then they unbind him, and, and he's free, and he's probably not very happy. Why wouldn't Lazarus be very happy? No. He was just in heaven. How many times does Lazarus get to die? Yeah. For real? I got to go back? No, he knew it right when he got to heaven. It wasn't for, for good, right? He was coming back. Um, but we see this picture of death that Jesus gives us. And, and again, if we had more time, we have the story of Lazarus where the people just don't understand the power that Christ has even over death. And there's a reason that, that Jacob is mentioned in the hall of faith as he blesses his children, as he plans for the future. And that blessing is tied to the fact that he's about to die. It's bookend by that Jacob knows he's going to die. So he calls Joseph's sons and it ends with his death and burial. And inside that understanding of death and the understanding of what it is to die, he knows and acknowledges that he has a God for whom the plan does not end at death. And in that little snippet of time, Jesus shows his disciples and all the Jews around him that he has a plan and a power to implement that plan that overcomes even death. And Jacob had that faith and Joseph shows that faith as well in this promise, take me out of the land and bury me in the promised land. Take me out of here. And, and he's embalmed and placed in a coffin. But, but let's not forget, since we're in Genesis, let's not forget again, how does Genesis start with everything being good? How does it end? In a coffin, not in the promised land. In a coffin, in Egypt. It's an incredibly stark contrast and you can just hear as they slide the coffin, the, the, the lid on the coffin and hear it thud down and the dust spread. And that's it. That's the end of Genesis. That's how Genesis ends. It starts with light. God creates light. And it ends here in death. As God moves his plan, even with death, death is not going to keep the plan that God has in mind for saving all mankind 
who turn to him, that plan is still going to march forward. He still has a way to defeat sin, and that's what we're seeing move forward. So that's Genesis. And I did want to just take a little bit of time to review some of Genesis. We've got five minutes here, and I'll probably use all of them. Um, So lessons for me for Genesis. I had the privilege of, as I taught this, to read through Scripture at the same time. It was taken about four pages a morning. And I can't tell you the benefit that it is, and I highly encourage you, no matter what you're studying, to be in the Word in other places and work through it systematically so that you can know and understand the Word. There's, a, there's the major lines that move through the entire, uh, entirety of Scripture, I think, are rooted in Genesis. And you'll find them, whether that has to do with the resurrection of the dead or with how salvation works or what, what we have to look forward to in eternity. I think all those things are tied back here. The Trinity... I mean, there are so many things that are mentioned in Genesis or the, the foundations for the rest of Scripture is there and the two play off of each other as you read them. One of my most encouraging things for myself has been the young people that are in here because I can tell you, and those of you who know where I grew up going to church, um, I can tell you that I know the effort they put into teaching us the Word of God and understanding the Word of God. There is a benefit in going through Scripture verse by verse and studying passages of Scripture that is beyond the benefit of learning proof texts, beyond the benefit of just learning, okay, uh, the wages of sin and death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Great verse. You should go and read it and read everything around it and know it. Actually know Scripture beyond just knowing individual verses. That's incredibly helpful because later in life when you're challenged with something, you can turn to the passage on death and dying. You can turn to this passage. You can turn to the passage in John and you're going to get so much more other than, well, I remember in John 11, Jesus cries. There's more to it. And there's, that'll breed a deeper understanding for you that will carry you forward for a lifetime. So when you are challenged in deep doctrinal things, which if you know the scripture, you're going to be challenged in some deep doctrinal things, you'll be able to take this book and open it up and see what it says. And you won't be reliant upon, well, I really like this pastor, so what he says in this passage is what I'm going to go with because he's impressive. And we have some impressive pastors that God's given the church. We won't name all of them. But there are a lot, and none of them are flawless. You have to be good Bereans, and you have to look at this book, and you have to study it, and and see if what you believe is actually true. And you don't do that verse, a single verse, and say, okay, this is what I believe. You do it by knowing and understanding and learning how to read through the scriptures. And hopefully, you've seen some of that over this last year or so. So I did, I, the last thing is that I just want to thank you guys because, again, I, have, I absolutely love getting to know and understand the word better. And I'd love to say that it makes me a, a better person, but I think all too often it makes me realize that I'm not a very good one. Um, it's not that part. It's just, just the knowledge and understanding of the word of God growing deeper and that you, none of you will ever plumb the depths. We could have spent 
10 times this amount of time going through Genesis and connecting it with the rest of Scripture, and, and uh, still there'd be more to plumb. So I, I thank you that I had the opportunity to do that, because if you're not teaching it and just studying on yourself, you don't go nearly as deep as you would otherwise. So for that, I greatly appreciate you guys being here and, and that motivation that it gives me to, to study the Word and be prepared um, was an incredible blessing to me. With that, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to know you and to know your word and just see uh, even a glimpse, just one of the books of the Bible, Lord, as we study through it and, and know and, and come to, to see you and what type of God we serve. Lord, I just thank you for all the people here. I pray that you would bless this time we've had in Genesis, that it would... Uh, be of a great benefit to them as they study the rest of Scripture, as they sit in, and listen to sermons, as they listen to things at home, as they go to their, their Bible studies, that everything they see and hear, that they'll be able to take it back to Scripture and understand that they can know it and they can use it and they can rightly divide it. Um, the resources are there for them to do that and they can gain knowledge and understanding. And uh, their their lives not only can reflect a deeper appreciation for holiness and a greater fear for sin, Lord, but that they would also just also have a, a greater encouragement when they do hear the word preached and, and a greater encouragement uh, when they fellowship with others. Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us now as we turn to, to the act of worship through song and, and fellowship and reading of your word and prayer and the preaching of your word, Lord, that we would Acknowledge that all these things are far greater than anything we deserve, but they are part of your plan, Lord, that you've done these things for our good and to bless us because you are a great and holy God who has forgiven us of our sins in Christ and his work if we simply believe. It's in his name we pray and we give you glory. Amen.